You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. The All-Hat Study, also known as the Anti-Hypertensive Lipid-Lowering Treatment to Prevent Heart Attack Trial, offers new information about treating both hypertension and high cholesterol. How does the All-Hat Study help us treat patients with type 2 diabetes? Joining us to discuss the results of the All-Hat Study is endocrinologist and director of the UAMS Arkansas Diabetes Program and director of the Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism Training Program, University of Arkansas Medical Center in Little Rock, Arkansas, Dr. Deborah Simmons. Dr. Simmons, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much. Well, let's start off with this very important study that really should uh, affect how we all treat patients in our clinic. Tell us about the All-Hat Study. Well, it's really what was called a simple, large, randomized trial. It was sponsored by the NIH, specifically National Heart Lung Blood Institute. It was actually designed in 1993 and first started in 1994. And I know you'll remember, but some of the listeners won't, is that at that time we actually knew that controlling high blood pressure was important for decreasing cardiovascular events. I think we forget about controversies once they're in the past, but originally we weren't totally sure that treating blood pressure would help. Okay. However, by that time, we actually had several new classes of drugs, and the study was designed to actually answer, do the newer drugs, are they better than the older drugs, particularly older thiazide diuretics? I think anybody that treats type 2 diabetes should know that uh, treating the cardiovascular risk factors are so important in reducing overall mortality. So let's go over the results of the study. Okay. Well, um, I I needed to at least mention that it was an outcomes trial. We kind of implied that, but some listeners may not totally understand that. So it wasn't looking just at whether it lowered blood pressure or some other surrogate marker, but actually looking at coronary heart disease deaths and non-fatal MI as the primary outcome. Other things were looked at also. Um, but those were the main. They had to be 55 years or older. They were going to be followed for about four to eight years. And 42,418 high-risk people with hypertension were in the trial. But before this, there really hadn't been this many people, and it was a third of them approximately had diabetes. Um, About a half were women, and you may or may not recall, but it used to be they almost always excluded women from studies. So this was really important, and about a little over a third were black, which is also very important to have ethnic minorities included in our studies. They were about 67 years old. About a quarter were cigarette smokers. Oh, I didn't mention the three types of drugs that were being compared. So one was a calcium channel blocker, one was an ACE inhibitor, and one was an alpha adrenergic blocker. And it actually turns out that the Data Safety and Monitoring Board stopped the arm that had the alpha adrenergic blocker on it. So it was after only 3.3 years about that they stopped um, that arm of the trial early. And the reason was because of a futility in finding that it was going to be better than the thiazide diuretic. And in addition, that there was a higher rate of secondary endpoints, which was combined cardiovascular disease, and 80% higher heart failure. 
So that was a major finding, and that was, I think, kind of surprising. However, for the whole trial, which went on for a total mean follow-up of almost five years, is that they found that neither the ACE inhibitor or the calcium channel blocker were superior. And I think a lot of people thought that was just not at all what they were going to find. What was the actual percent reduction in myocardial infarction and the differences in the two blood pressure levels, treated and untreated? Um, but actually, 90% of the patients that came in were already treated for blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Okay, And the goal was to be less than 140 over 90. And there were very minor, the very minor differences in blood pressure control for the different groups. Mm-hmm. They were very close, not quite exactly. Um, for the exact percentage decrease in MIs, I don't recall that. I think they were the same, though. I don't think MI was one that was different. This is an important point. It's not placebo-controlled. And at some point, we passed over, we as a group, for many of the different diseases that we look at, passed from being able to just look at placebo controls where you do know how it compares to not treating to active comparators. Okay, so nobody was not treated for their blood pressure. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Steve Edelman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Deborah Simmons. We are discussing the results of the all-hat clinical study. Well, where do you put thiazide diuretics in the current treatment of hypertension in our patients with type 2 diabetes? I'm sorry, we didn't actually even get to talk about that. You know, so the diabetes was a subgroup specifically that was looked at, and it wasn't any different for them than the people without diabetes, okay? And so thiazides would be first-line therapy in addition, which most people like ACEs, ACE inhibitors, of course, as you know, and um, all had said that thiazides are also a very good first choice and that many people really need more than one drug and that thiazide should be part of it. So for me, I have most of my people on thiazides. What dose do you use? I commonly use the hydrochlorothiazide 12.5. Yeah, and do you ever go higher than that? Um, I will occasionally go to 25, but I usually leave it at the 12.5. Yeah, now, um, in our patients uh, that we treat at, at our hospital, especially the VA, they're probably similar to your VA patients. And we recently did analysis looking at our typical type 2 patient is on three blood pressure pills to keep the the blood pressure at goal. What kind of goal are you using these days with your patients, and do you change it depending on the age and and things like that? Um, Less than 130 over 80, and do I change it, the goal? Um, I don't think I change the goal too much for age. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's uh, We know that our goals have been lowered by all the national organizations. Well, let's talk about that. How does the American Diabetes Association and other ones like AADE and ACE participate in clinical studies for blood pressure and lipids? Well, this is kind of a big, broad question. And the one you just asked me about where are thiazides in my, in my practice was easy. This one's a pretty hard one. And um, all three of the organizations do different things for all are very interested in, in diabetes, of course. And ADA funds quite a bit of different research from basic research to more clinical things. AADE, I think, um, is interest is more research that relates to actually dissemination, um, teaching directly to patients and their families how to take care of different aspects of diabetes, including hypertension and, and um, cholesterol. Um, ACE, I don't think, does something specific for, for 
research. Well, I would I would just add and help you out on that question. That you know, I think you've answered it exactly right. Uh, one is research. One is disseminating the information, how to measure it correctly. And ACE probably gets uh, a good grade in, in disseminating yeah, information. I, was, I didn't get to quite finish. I was going to say that they actually probably do do focus more on promoting um, understanding about different research to both um, you know clinicians as well as to patients. Yeah. Now, Debbie, since you've been involved in, in many studies in your career, um, when when us listeners read a study, how, what should we be looking for in terms of the study design and how they measured blood pressure? Are there certain things that absolutely need, we need to look for that were done correctly? Because we know blood pressure can change dramatically depending on whose measurement, what time of day, what position, things like that. You're not being very easy on me, huh? No. So um, that's okay. Well, I tried to give a little bit of an indication about what to look for in the studies, where I couldn't just jump to what the results were without going back a little bit about who actually came into the trial. Okay, so who who's in the trial? Mm-hmm. You know, how well was it designed? And most people don't want to look at the design, but it's out there to, to be able to evaluate it. For measuring the blood pressure, it's extraordinarily specific in the blood pressure trials for how it's done. And in clinics, we don't do it quite that way. All hat was, was, was interesting. You, you didn't ask me what simple was. And simple is something very specific that I don't know I can tell you exactly. But instead of being a typical NIH study um, done at mostly academic research centers as well as a few others, all hat in a simple study means it's done also in the community. So it's much more... Um, it's easy to, to think of interpreting it for going straight to the clinics. Now, although I say that, my, my coordinator there was actually my clinic nurse, and when they realized somebody was actually for all hat, I was an investigator, I forget how you you know, identified me different ways, but so my clinic nurse would do the blood pressure again just as regular clinic, and it's like, oh, don't you remember their all hat? And then it would come back and get done very specifically and would always be lower when it was done properly. Mm-hmm. So in clinic, I'm positive, no matter how good your nurse is, our nurses are, that it just, or myself, you know, you just get busy and you sit them down and you do it. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so that's a little bit different. And there are people who believe strongly we need to be changing over to doing, you know, home blood pressure, ambulatory blood pressure pressure to, to learn more about um, how the measures at home and the people with the white coat, we didn't even get into that. Um, yeah, you're pretty threatening when, when you look at you, so that would raise I my blood pressure. I a couple more things, though. I'm sorry, because you, you're wanting to know, I think, about more blood pressure trials. Please. So, you know, Accord is fixing to come out, too. It had blood pressure arms that were for treatment goals in type 2 diabetes, and that should be known, that part, by summer, I think, at the latest. And this isn't diabetes, but it's blood pressure for treatment goals. Okay, the question, um, and this would be for a court, it was less than 140 for standard for the systolic and less than 120 for the intensive, is that NIH has just announced recently that their NHLBI will do one um, that's called SPRINT. That's basically the same thing and similar in non-diabetes to really learn, well, what should our goal be? That's excellent. Now, in, in my last question for our listeners is more of a practical question. You know, we, we've been taught to use ACE inhibitors, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, if they get a cough. Um, I want to make sure that, um, you know, our listeners get a good idea of some of the basic approaches to treating type 2 diabetes in terms of hypertension, okay. what agents and what your approach is and what would be acceptable. Okay. Um, so I would usually, if, if they already have microalbuminuria, I would usually put them on an ACE inhibitor first. If they don't have microalbuminuria, then I would I would put them on a thiazide or an ACE inhibitor. And for a second agent, I would always do the, the thiazide if they weren't already an ACE inhibitor. 
Now, you're aware, but most of the listeners won't be aware, is that I rarely get to be totally by myself because I'm at a a training institution also. So I often have, or not just training, but also referral. So I often have people already on something from somewhere else. And I would say that my impression is most other people, no matter how much I try to teach them, forget to do the thiazide diuretic. So it's more common I personally add it rather than even getting to start it to begin with just because of my practice. You know, Deborah, I, I I agree with you because a little bit of ACE inhibitor goes a long way because we know the hypertension of diabetes is at least in part volume dependent. I'd like to thank our guest, endocrinologist and director of the Endocrinology, Diabetes and Metabolism Training Program, University of Arkansas Medical Center in Little Rock, Arkansas, Dr. Deborah Simmons. Dr. Simmons, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. You're welcome, Steve. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. What are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes, and like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.